One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to the home for the politically homeless and the podcast for those of you who like your politics and colors other than red and blue. As always, if you like this show, you can get the word out by sharing YDHTY and leaving a review. And also, as always, don't forget to subscribe and get a piping hot episode of YDHTY delivered to your ears every Thursday. I'm sure you love that image. Now, we are in the second installment of a series on healthcare I recorded at the beginning of this year. And in last week's episode, and if you didn't listen, you should listen, we spoke with Dan Gorenstein about the complexities of the American healthcare system and the trade-offs we'll need to consider if we want to ensure no one in the United States goes without care. And this episode's guest experienced these trade-offs firsthand. John Gruber is a professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and prior to this was one of the driving forces behind the incorporation of the individual mandate provision in both Mitt Romney and Barack Obama's health care reform laws, that being the provision that requires everyone to buy health insurance or face a penalty. Now, in this conversation, I learned a ton about the inner machinations of policymaking, why smart people like John get into public service, and whether the current political climate is pushing smart people like John away. We also got to talk about Conan the Barbarian, which makes this episode a win in and of itself. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. John, I, I had reached out to you and invited you on because of your experience both in crafting uh, Romney Care, the healthcare bill in Massachusetts, but also then working on the ACA, uh, otherwise known as Obamacare. And I, I'm just I'm really interested in getting your insight on kind of what led you to the individual mandate, uh, but also generally your experience working in government. But before we get into that, John, there's a very important aspect of your bio that I really think takes center stage above and beyond all that, which is you got to hold the sword that Arnold Schwarzenegger used in Conan the Barbarian. And I don't want you to tell the listener why just yet. Listener, we are going to get to that in a second. But I just have to ask, like, walk me through that. How big was it? How heavy was it? You know? Well, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was super cool. I mean, to set a little bit of context, you know, I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, I grew up with these Schwarzenegger films. So, you know, uh, it was it was a very exciting moment for me. The sword was surprisingly light. Um, it was pretty manageable for a regular sized guy like me. Um, yeah. uh, and it was just super amazing to get to do that, to feel uh, to feel that 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 connection with that piece of Hollywood history was really cool. That's cool. The power of crumb. Well, exactly. Yeah, my uh, my producer, Adam, who edits all of these years ago, his roommate had a copy of Conan the Barbarian. And I used to I used whenever I was over the, their place, I used to harass them incessantly to watch it. Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. <laughs> that is good. 
it, like they, so I'm telling you, I can quote this thing verbatim. It was all I could do not to build well, this sort it, of. If, if that's true, then then here's an important little known fact. Okay. The little known fact is, you know, they made a Conan two that was that was a bomb. Oh yeah. And so after um the movie, oh my god, uh, I forget the name, Short Sanger made a movie where he was um he started out. He, he was rescuing his daughter from these people. I forget the name of the movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Commando. Let's party. Another big hit. And they wanted to make a sequel to it. And he refused because he said, I'd had my, he's had his fill of sequels. That sequel was Die Hard. And so <gasps> he was originally offered the job that Bruce Willis got in Die Hard. And think how different movie history would be if Arnold Schwarzenegger instead of Bruce Willis had played the role in Die Hard. Wow. That's pretty amazing, right? Wow, that would have changed the whole movie. Yeah, that would have changed everything. Wouldn't have been movie. as good. It would have changed Bruce Willis' career. Would have changed his career. The whole thing. So it's it's oh it, it's sort of interesting to think that he to to, to picture for a moment uh, what happens to Die Hard when the when the hero is not a regular schlub like Bruce Willis, but 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 a bodybuilder. Well, that's exactly it. It's like it's kind of made by the fact that Bruce Willis is sort of the everyman exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Conan definitely made a much better barbarian than he did a destroyer. Yeah. I'll tell you that. <laughs> exactly. Oh. Um, all right. Well, so that out of the way, we'll go to the, the much less important aspect of uh, healthcare in America. Um, so you, you're an economist. And uh, before we get into kind of what it was like working in government and, and how you reach those conclusions, I, I'd like to give the listener an idea as to your bio and kind of how you found your way into this field of study in the first place, because I found that really interesting. Uh, I was at, in college. I wanted to be a lawyer. And then uh, Right before I was about to apply to law school, they had this thing called Newsweek on campus, which was this free little rag Newsweek distributed. And then an article in the back saying, like, does this describe you? You don't know what to do, so you take the LSATs. You do well in the SATs, so you go to law school. You go to law school, so you become a lawyer and you hate your career. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm two-thirds of the way to that. I, I don't want to yeah. be a lawyer. What else am I going to do? I guess I can get the PhD in economics, which is a terrible way to go about making a decision of that magnitude. So um, I went to get a PhD, and then... Uh, uh, while I was there, really, I was always super interested in public policy. As an undergrad, I worked at the Brookings Institution, and I was always very interested in public policy. And in the early 1990s, the public policy of note was healthcare reform. Bill Clinton had proposed a large healthcare reform as part of his campaign. And so I started working on healthcare reform as an academic exercise. Uh, and um, then after a couple of years as a professor, my Thesis advisor was a guy named Larry Summers, who many people have heard of. Um, at that point, he was deputy secretary of the Treasury, and he invited me to come down and work in the Clinton administration. Uh, so I was very excited to do that uh, because I was always had this interest in public policy. And I worked in the Treasury Department on a variety of things. But what was really striking about that was how much I realized that, you know, a good number is worth a thousand words in Washington and that numbers do matter and facts do matter. And um, it made me excited to come out of that experience, come back to academia, which is a life I loved, but to do so in a way which recognizing that if you can really translate into English for policymakers what economics has to say and the numbers and the interesting insights and facts it can produce, you can really make a difference in how policy is made. So that was really kind of how I kind of got to the threshold of, of, of where I ended up with healthcare reform. Got it. And so... When you were tapped by Romney to help with the crafting of healthcare reform in Massachusetts, had you already arrived 
at the idea of the individual mandate or was that something that came up as you were talking with them? Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's not, look, it's not an original idea to me. Let's be very clear. And of course it's very important to remember the, the sort of, I mean, it's not an original, I don't know where the original idea came from, but it's sort of the popularization of the idea came from the right wing, in particular from the Heritage Foundation as a counterpoint to Hillary and Bill Clinton's plan to have an employer mandate in the early 1990s. Hmm. So the individual mandate was a conservative idea. I, you know, in the, in the mid 1990s had written sort of the Robert Johnson foundation and sort of a series of like proposals for national healthcare reform. And mine had included an individual mandate. It looked a lot like what Romney care ended up being. Um, meanwhile, in my experience coming out of Washington, um, uh, I was someone make the excellent suggestion. They said, look, policymakers, you know, when you academics talk to policymakers, you say this elasticity and that elasticity and policymakers aren't interested. What they really want to know is if I pass this law, what's going to happen? So you should build a model that can tell them that. So I built what's called the computer micro simulation model, which is a fancy name for just the big computer, you know, 10,000 lines of computer code mm -hmm. that essentially translate policy parameters through what we know about how individuals respond to policy to get estimates of, say, if you do this law, how it will affect healthcare coverage and government expenditures. It's what the Congressional Budget Office does, right? But the thing is, regular people don't do this. The only people who do it are people who do it for money who want to get a certain answer. You know, people you hire to get, you know, hired guns to say, look, I want this answer, build a model, get me that answer. There weren't really, a, at that time, sort of objective people out there doing this. So I developed that model and was actually using it for some earlier work in Massachusetts. So they knew of the model and knew of my work. So Romney administration came to me and said, look, you've got this model. We've got this plan. Let's put them together and see what you're, you know, what we can learn about the plan. So, so the idea of the individual mandate was in this context was Romney's. And Romney, once again, was a conservative. Romney liked it for a very different reason in some sense than I do. Romney liked it on moral grounds. Romney's view was, look, it is unfair that healthy people are free riding on the rest of us by staying uninsured until they hit by a car and they go into the hospital getting free care. That's, that's immoral. And we should require that everyone in society has, is held individually responsible. And the way to do that is make sure that they're covered by health insurance. And he, so his team sort of presented that plan to me. I said, well, look, it turns out that plan has got some terrific economics behind it too. And in particular, what I argued to Romney, and I only really had one very big meeting with him where I sort of presented these numbers. I basically talked about how much more efficient it would be to expand health insurance coverage. If you just offer health insurance coverage to people and only the sick take it, it's very, very expensive per person covered. But if you bring everyone to the system, you can bring average prices down a lot. And I sort of demonstrated that with my model and he found it sort of a very important, as I said, data backup to sort of somewhere he wanted to be anyway. And so I became sort of the numbers guy, you know, the data argument for that approach. Understood. Understood. So this was, this was an, uh, uh, an idea that was floating around in conservative circles prior to this. And then you were the exactly. one who sort of married the economics or married the model with the policy effectively. Exactly. Exactly. And then we passed Romicare. And remember when, when we passed it, I was thrilled to be at the bill signing. He thanked me personally during the bill signing, which was wonderful. But up in the podium, let's remember, it's important to think about the politics that's going to happen just a few years later was Romney and Ted Kennedy and a speaker from a right-wing heritage, the right-wing heritage foundation talking about what a victory this was for conservative principles. So let's remember the genesis of this law was really from a Republican governor using as its core. And indeed 
the harshest criticism we got where draftness law was from the AFL-CIO, who thought it would be terrible, uh, who thought if we, if we required individuals to have insurance, it would kill the employer insurance market. And they didn't like that. So actually, you got to remember, this was not some left-wing strategy. This came out of the conservative, you know, ideosphere. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea, again, for for those of you who might not understand it, and I'm going to assume everybody does, but we'll just explain it anyway. You know, the whole idea behind the individual mandate is everybody has to buy health insurance. So healthy people and sick people have to buy in, and that ultimately keeps the costs lower than they would be if only sick people were buying in or it yeah and i, I and, and you know i'd urge your if your listeners want more detail i have there's two places to look one is i have a ted talk they can go online and watch it's actually ted med it's a sort of lesser known offshoot of ted just google my ted talk it'll show up i also have a comic book i've written to explain healthcare. It's technically a graphic novel but it's really just a comic book to explain healthcare reform and that gives a little more detail but roughly speaking the idea is the following before the individual mandate insurers, insurers are like bookies. Okay. They don't want to take a risk. They just want to set the spread. So people bet an equal amount on both sides and they take the profit off the top. The problem is before the individual mandate, if the only people buying health insurance are sick, insurers are going to lose their shirts. So what they do is they would say, I'm not going to offer you health insurance. If you at all seem like you might be sick, or I'm going to remove it from you once you get sick. So essentially the deal with the insurers was, look, We'll get, we'll offer you a broad representative customer base and in return, you price insurance fairly and non-discriminatorily. So that was sort of, you know, really Romney set up what I describe as sort of a three-legged stool, which was the first leg, which actually predated Romney, Massachusetts already had it, was saying insurers can't discriminate against the sick. And by the way, let me just say how incredibly bizarre it is to let insurers discriminate against the sick. I mean, what's the point of insurance if you can tell the sick they can't have it? Mm-hmm. So Massachusetts would have a few states that had said that. But the problem with that is if you tell insurers they can't discriminate against the sick, they say, fine, I'm just not going to sell insurance. And the insurance market collapsed when we did that. Indeed, seven states tried to do this. And every state, their insurance market collapsed. So the idea, Romney's idea was, well, if you have an individual mandate, then you could sort of prop that up. You can say, okay, insurers, you have to offer everyone insurance at a fair price, but we'll make it feasible for you by making sure everybody buys. But then the problem with that is you can't be able to buy something they can't afford. So you need a third leg of the stool, which is subsidies to make health insurance affordable. So that became the Massachusetts model, which is, you know, end discrimination insurance markets, mandate individuals buy insurance and subsidize insurance so it's affordable for the low income people. And that was what our plan became. Got it. And there's an important element to bring up, too, which is this was largely funded by a, a federal grant, correct? Yeah, yeah. The funding history is fascinating because what happened was because we had this powerful senator, Ted Kennedy, we had essentially been basically ripping off the federal Medicaid program for hundreds of millions of dollars a year. We basically taken advantage of this, not illegal, but like there's this loophole we're taking advantage of. And the Bush administration, no fan of Ted Kennedy, wanted to close it. Bush one, uh, no, Bush two. Uh, this is this is early 2000s. Uh, wanted to close it. Um, and Romney said, "Wait a second, can we keep the money if we use it instead of just being a slush fund for hospitals, which is what it was? Can we keep the money instead if we use it to money to help get to universal coverage?" And the Bush administration, to their credit, said yes, but only if you figure out how to do this within like X months. There was like a ticking time bomb. Like if you don't figure this out by, you know, it was sort of early 2006, I guess, or it was around, you know, when we passed it. If you don't figure it out by then, we're taking the money away. So essentially, we had this enormous advantage, which is the feds were going to pay for it. And it was free money to the state the feds were going to take away if we didn't use it uh, to expand insurance coverage. 
Okay. Okay. I want to, I, I want to make sure that's clear. Cause that's going to come up a little later on. So, uh, Romney care passes. And now first and foremost, I do want to tell you this because I, I, and, and I'm hoping you, you like hearing this. So I have, uh, one child with a pre-existing condition and, and I live in Massachusetts as well. And one of the things I always used to talk to my parents about, my parents are, are very conservative, uh, is I used to say, I won't move into another state because my son would be uninsurable on the private market in another state. This is pre-ACA. Right. Now, yeah, now following the ACA, he now, now since, uh, now he's also now a type one diabetic too. And so needless to say, like your work has impacted me personally and I thank you for that. Uh, first and foremost, I just want to bring that up. It's very you rare. Know, look, look, look th those stories mean a lot. I mean, one thing that's absolutely incredible is literally the first woman who signed up for a plan in Massachusetts got a screening head cancer. I mean, mm. like, you know, you can't make this shit up. I mean, it really is incredible. The real impacts this has, we'll come to this later and we talk about, you know, the politics of this all, but this really matters for real people. And I, I, I'm so happy that it helped you and your family. Yeah, it really did. It really did. So I wanted to make sure we didn't we didn't pass that up. So um, so Romney Care passes, and then now we're gonna go back to the sort of Conan because you got yeah. a call from then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, correct? Yeah. Well, what happened was remember Romney Care passes, and it's this huge political win. Here's Massachusetts, liberal state of the nation, forming a coalition of liberals and Republicans to come to get the news. So coverage was sort of a conservative bent. So. All of a sudden, all the moderate Republicans in the country want to do this, including R. Schwarzenegger. So I get a call to go out there and I got to meet with him. And so it was waiting to meet with him. The sword's in the ante room before you meet with him. And I met with him and he looks very awkward in a suit. There's this big guy in a suit, but he does talk like, you know, he's like, we will get health insurance for everyone in California. You know, it, really <laughs> yeah. did. it really was a thrill to meet with him. And we actually had a plan that was agreed to by Schwarzenegger and by the leaders of both houses of the California um, legislature. And then I told them what the bill was going to be. And they said, well, we can't afford that. <laughs> and I said, well, how'd you in Massachusetts? In Massachusetts, we had the federal government implicitly picking up the bill because we were sort of using money that, you know, that once again, Ted Kennedy exploited this loophole to get us a bunch of money that was going to go away otherwise. So we kind of didn't have to raise a lot of tax in Massachusetts. California was going to be, you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And they're like, we can't afford this. And in fact, state after state said to me, you know, hey, we can't afford this. And it was clear if this was going to happen, the Massachusetts was a special case. If this is really mm. going to happen elsewhere, it's going to have to involve federal funding. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was one of my questions, because, you know, in general, I think what, what's all, what I've always wondered about is why the why why Obama specifically jumped headfirst into this right away rather than letting Massachusetts be a proving ground. But it sounds like Massachusetts was a special case. And so the federal no, government would have had to get involved to make it work. No, I would I would say, in fact, Massachusetts, that, that's, I, I would say it's not correct. I would say Obama jumped into it because Massachusetts is a proving ground. Remember, Massachusetts was, two, we started in early 2006. Um, yeah. By the time Obama was elected, we already had like two thirds of the uninsured covered. And it was very popular. So it was already a very big, it had already proven and you have to also remember when Obama ran for president, he did not support the Massachusetts plan. Indeed, he and Hillary got into it. Hillary actually supported the Massachusetts plan. He opposed the individual mandate. Uh, most notably in Iowa, he put out a sort of a flyer saying like how Hillary is terrible. Hillary wanted an individual mandate. And that got the Hillary people very, very upset. 
But to his credit, when he got elected, he said, hey, this model works. Let's do it. And he um, and and really, as as you know, uh, uh, my colleague, John McDonough, who's a famed leader of healthcare in Massachusetts, says, you know, Obamacare became, you know, Romney care with three more zeros. I mean, it basically was the Massachusetts plan at the national level. Yeah. And, and so you mentioned that uh, Obama ran against the individual mandate yeah. in the primaries, which which I remember. Did you have to do any convincing to get him to buy into this concept? Or again, when he tapped you, was he already bought into that? Well, um, I was not I was advising Hillary, actually, more than I was advising him. Uh, but I wasn't really I was pretty I wasn't picking a horse. You know, I was I was talking to both sides. Um, you know, Obama's health care main people knew my views on this and they just disagreed. Uh, and um, but what happened is after he got elected, once again, I was the guy with the model. I mean, really, it's sort of the story of how does a nerd get in the room where these important decisions are being made, which is that I had the numbers and the numbers matter. And I mean, even to the point where, you know, Washington insiders will tell you there's huge battles within administrations on whose numbers to use and who controls the numbers. And even within the Obama administration, like there were many people at opposing numbers who wanted to, who were like bad mouthing me and saying, don't use Gruber's numbers, you know, use my numbers. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of power in controlling the numbers because once you do, if I'd said the numbers, I'd say, and by the way, did you realize this is a better idea than that one? And that was the way I could sort of get my opinions in by sort of showing them how one idea is better than another using the numbers. So I sort of was, you know, I, I, I didn't, I had, being in government is not a family friendly job. I had kids that were still pretty young. I told them I don't want to be in the administration, but I'm happy to help. And so I basically got to do it from the comfort of my own home. Oh, beautiful. Now, and, and you, you kind of alluded to this as well in your last comment, um, the passage of the ACA was a far uglier process. Oh yeah. Than Romney care. And was this a case where maybe there were some aspects of the bill that didn't apply as well across all states, sort of that one size fits all approach didn't work? Or was it really more just, you know, craven politics looking to take down a new president? I think it was three things. One is you had to pay for it. I mean, it's, it's a lot harder to, to do. It's four things. I shouldn't, my wife says you never give a number before a list. So it, 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 <laughs> I think it was at least four things. Uh, one is you had to pay for it, which you didn't have to do mm -hmm. at the master's level. Two is the dirty secret is the average American voter doesn't give a shit about the uninsured. The American mm -hmm. voter wasn't going to pass a big bill. It had to be about health care costs as well. And so it couldn't just Massachusetts. Romney care was a purely coverage bill. Obamacare had to be about coverage and costs and costs is politically way harder. Coverage is about giving people things. Controlling costs is about taking away things. So that's the second difficulty. It couldn't just be about coverage. It had to be about costs, which brings to the whole new set of fights. The third difficulty was that politics are uglier. I mean, the Massachusetts bill passed with two dissenting votes in the entire legislature. So the politics are uglier. And this was, remember, I would argue the summer of 2009 was literally the pivotal moment for polarization in American politics. That's when the Tea Party movement sort of first reared its head. Um, so this was sort of in the teeth of really a transition to a hyper-polarized, you know, uh, political climate. The fourth thing is more subtle, but maybe more important, which is I think where Miss Massachusetts, all the predictions for Massachusetts worked at the national level, except one, which is the mandate doesn't work unless people are willing to, there's sort of a social moral component to the mandate that people in Massachusetts are willing to buy into that people around the country weren't. 
Now, how much of that is because of the politics? I don't know. It's a good question. You know, if politics was as good as Massachusetts, people have been willing to put up the mandate. And after all, people don't go out in the street and protest, you know, auto insurance mandates. I mean, they don't like the price, but nobody protests the mandate to buy auto insurance. So is this a sort of feedback loop effect of the politics? I don't know. But I think we did not anticipate how much that would become sort of a, a firing point in places outside Massachusetts where it was actually reasonably accepted. I mean, I, so I remember when they were passing that bill and I remember that I think it was the summer is when the tea party really started. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. politics, I mean, this, you know, let's start to get into politics. It was really important. This is why I was excited to come on your show and why what you're doing is so important, Dan. Uh, so basically let's remember the politics. So this came into, this was proposed by Obama because he viewed it as a bipartisan approach. It was a Republican governor's idea. He said, well, I'm bringing in the mandate from the right, so they'll buy in. Literally, you can find quotes from people who are endorsing the individual mandate six months later saying it was the devil's work, and the only difference was Obama had, had endorsed it. So, But the bill was written by a bipartisan committee. The bill was written by a committee of six senators, three Republicans and three Democrats, from the Finance Committee, who wrote the bill. I mean, you could still see in the final ACA pieces that were put in by Republican senators. Okay. And then what happened was Obama said, okay, we've got this. And Max Baucus was the chair of the finance committee. And he said, okay, you know, we want to pass it by August recess. And Max Baucus didn't, he wanted to sort of tie his loose ends down. And the politicians went home for August recess and the Republican politicians who'd played a part of this got killed. I mean, those town halls, remember Mm -hmm. those town halls, you know, and the famous, you know, keep the government's hands off my Medicare signs, you know, um, uh, that turned, that was like, I mean, I mean, I hate to say it, but in many ways, the Affordable Care Act was the springboard on which much of the hyperpolarization of America got launched. Um, it really was that summer was the real the point that people realized that shouting loud enough can matter. And mm-hmm. people came to these town halls and disrupted them and made a lot of noise based on nothing. Um, and the Republicans came back and said, there's no way we're playing part in this. And that was the critical political mistake that Obama and Baucus made, which is, do you remember when we had the Iraq, this is now going back, you know, to when you're much younger, but we had the Iraq war, uh, Mm -hmm. George Bush put together sort of his, you know, coalition of the willing, he called it, which was basically the U S and like three Polish soldiers. Okay. So basically Mm -hmm. that's sort of what Obama wanted. He wanted one Republican. He wanted to be able to say it's bipartisan to do that. He only needed one Republican. So they spent three months cajoling and wheedling and begging and the Republicans to be on board. And so finally they passed it at Christmas Eve, but they'd lost three crucial months um, in doing so because over that break, then Ted Kennedy died. So suddenly you didn't have 60 votes in the Senate anymore. So suddenly you couldn't do, you know, it went from having a Republican would be a nice to have to Republicans a must have, uh, on the bill. And that was the, so, so that was really sort of, if there's a huge political mistake, it was not realizing after that summer, wow, the ship has sailed. We got to get this thing passed and through while, you know, while, while we still have all the democratic control. Yeah. And I, one question, do, do you have any idea why it sparked such a response because I remember seeing footage of Chuck Grassley getting getting screamed. Yeah, at. And I, I think it was. Our- yeah, it's it's a great it's a great question. I don't I don't I don't know for sure, but I have a couple of theories. 
So one theory is that I think, think about a simple formula, which is how much people know about something to how much they think they know about it. And I can't think of any topic with a lower number than healthcare. And then everybody thinks they know everything about healthcare. And as Trump famously said, it's actually incredibly hard. And so, you know, whenever I get in a taxi and people find out who I was, they say, let me tell you how to fix healthcare in America. Now, if I was an astrophysicist, they wouldn't say, me, let me tell you how to find this atom or whatever to make this discovery. <laughs> but so partly I think people think they understand it and they think it's easy and they understand it. So that's part of the problem is that it's just harder than people realize. Um, and part of the problem was it was just a moment where, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, we could, this is the larger politics of what the Obama presidency means in the long run of history. But I think a lot of people were upset that a black man had been elected president. A lot of people were upset about what it meant for our country, where we're heading as our country. And this became the moment to express that displeasure. This became their proxy war. You know, you can't have a recall presidential election. This became their recall battle. This became their proxy war against the election outcome they were upset about. There, uh, there was also, and, and you know, it's funny now. I'm, 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 I'm thinking back and and piecing together the, the sequence of events in the passage, and you had the delay over the summer. Then, of course, you had the Republican senators going back and hearing from their own constituents that compromise would mean death, effectively. And then Ted Kennedy dies, and then in the first time in I don't know how long in Massachusetts, a Republican senator gets elected. Well, I mean, and, and I don't know if you remember this, Dan, but this is like, it, it's tragic. Oh my God, I forgot the woman's name. What was her name? Who lost, uh, uh, who lost, know, to, Ted, uh, who lost to Scott Brown? Anyway. It was, yeah, was go, it, go on. I, I know I'm, it's right on the tip it, of my tongue. But, was it Martha but, but Coakley? On, yeah. is that, no. It was Martha Coakley. Mar it was Martha so, Coakley. You have to yep. remember, you had a, I was out to do with my family you know, Christmas Eve, we're Jewish, so we're out to Chinese food on Christmas Eve, uh, you know, 2009, and we're celebrating. And my wife, I remember, I'll remember like it's yesterday, I said to me, well, could anything go wrong? I said, well, the only thing go wrong would be if a Republican won Ted Kennedy's seat, and that's not going to happen. And it happened because we had a terrible candidate who did things like saying, refusing to appear outside Fenway Park and not knowing which team Kurt Schilling played for. You know, you just can't do that in Massachusetts politics. Who took? She took like nine days vacation, like, right before the election. Uh, I and it, it was just, it was so, so you had that upset. So all of a sudden you had panic because suddenly you had less than 60 votes. And as we've discovered you know, repeatedly with these reconciliation rules, you, 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 so repeatedly, if you've less than 60, you want to pass, you need to use reconciliation, which is a lot more stringent form of change you can pass. So that made things a lot more complicated. And ultimately, I mean, to, to make you know, to, to help explain it sort of as briefly as possible, what happened was you had a House version that had passed and a Senate version that had passed. And the idea was there'd be a conference, like we remember from, you know, how law, be, you know, I'm a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill, there'll be a conference. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem was at that point, they couldn't have a conference because a conference applies going back to the Senate for another vote and it wouldn't pass. So what happened is the House had to pass the Senate version. And that was, uh, and that was tough because, how, you know, the House of Representatives worked really hard on their version. They didn't want to do that. So that was really the battle. Um, and then uh, that was sort of what happened. And they sort of cobbled together a way they could pass it under those rules. Yeah. Well, one of the things that got struck out, too, I remember, was the public option. And that's something you support. You, you, you support. Why? 
Well, um, okay, so let's talk about the public option. This is very important. Yeah. Um, the public option has two pieces. Public option light, I call it, is let's have the government offer insurance options on an exchange there's competition for the private sector. Public option heavy is let's also have the government option Medicare. And the reason that's heavy is because Medicare pays regulated rates to doctors, which the private sector doesn't. So that means the private sector would have to compete with a public plan that has a regulatory advantage. So public option light was in many ways part of the ACA. It wasn't called the public option, but the ACA put a bunch of money to setting up new cooperative nonprofit healthcare plans all over the country. So we sort of got public option light. Public option heavy is just too big a lift politically. It was just too hard because the insurance companies knew that that would be a tough competition for them and they didn't want that. And the insurance companies, it's a $1 trillion industry. You know, you can't win that fight. They basically almost single-handedly killed Clinton healthcare reform. And it's just, you just a fight you couldn't win. So that's why the public option never, the sort of public option heavy never really came to be because it's basically the insurance companies didn't want to compete with reg, with a government insurer paying regulated prices to doctors. Is, is there an argument to be made that Medicare doesn't pay as well as private insurance does? And so that's why it has a competitive advantage. And your, your typical doctor has to have a certain number of privately insured patients to make up for the cost of Medicare patients, or is that a fallacy? Well, no. I mean, the first part of your statement is a fact. Medicare pays about three quarters of what the private sector pays. It's the second part of your statement that that I think is a fallacy, which is that if we pay doctors three quarters of what they made now on private patients, we'd suddenly see a crisis in doctoring in America. I don't think that's true. Uh, you know, we could see a crisis in primary care doctoring, but the orthopod making a million a year is not going to go become something else because he's making 800,000 a year. You know, it's just not, it's not happening. So I think that basically, yes. Uh, and I had, that's why I have over the past 10 or 15 years, become a fan of just broad, more broadly regulating healthcare prices, because I think we're just, we have to in America. It, one of the things you said too is, and, and I heard this in an interview, is that if you could have done the ACA all over again, you would have asked those writing it to be less physically, or excuse me, let me repeat that. You, you mentioned in another interview that if you could have done the ACA all over again, you would have asked those writing it to be less fiscally responsible. You know, what did you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's, it's said that way, it's, it's glib, but here's the point. Yeah. Obama, like perhaps his number one thing in his list is it had to be deficit reducing, affordable character deficit reducing, which meant that you couldn't spend a lot of money greasing the wheels to make the law more popular. So let's do a simple contrast. Medicare Part D is the law that provides prescription drug store seniors passed by the Bush administration in 2003. That law was less popular than the ACA when it was passed and had the same kind of technical glitches when it started, but within a couple of years was incredibly popular. Why? Because Bush never paid for it. There was no, it just, he just put it on the deficit. There was no pay for for that. So he, when you don't have to pay for something, you can avoid creating losers. Once you pay for something, you have to create losers. Now, I don't think the ACA should have been totally unpaid for, but the ACA basically lowered, was projected lower deficit by like a trillion dollars over 20 years. Okay. We could have, instead of having lowered the deficit, we could have said, well, let's at least make it deficit neutral, maybe reduce, increase it a bit and take some of that extra money and make it so that you didn't create any losers by the law. 
compensate those people. Who were the losers from? So roughly speaking with the ACA, the rough math is about 80% of Americans were left alone. About 17% of Americans were helped and about 3% of Americans lost. Well, technically lost. Who were the people who lost? They were people who were benefiting from the discrimination that kept your son out of the individual insurance market. The flip side of your son not getting insurance is that people who are healthy get insurance more cheaply. Once you let your son get insurance affordably, that's going to make them pay more. I mean, you know, quite frankly, it's, you know, once you don't force people of a certain color to sit in the back of the bus, it makes the front of the bus more crowded. You know, it doesn't mean we shouldn't allow people to sit wherever they want on the bus, but there are people who are upset as they were when we, when we, you know, when we allowed people to sit anywhere in the bus they wanted to. We could have helped those people. We could have said, look, there's going to be a transition cost here. The people who buy insurance now in this market are going to have to pay more. We should take, spend the money it takes to hold them harmless. And that would have cost like $100 billion on a bill that reduced the deficit by like a trillion dollars. So it was just, we didn't do it because it it's bad economics. You shouldn't do it. Those people, it's like, you shouldn't compensate people to share the front of the bus. They were just, it was unfair. But it would have been good politics. And if I had to go back and do it over again, and I had the presence here, I would have said, don't be crazy. Be a little less fiscally responsible and make sure we don't create any losers from this law. And I want to ask a question with the, with the caveat that if you can hear my cat meowing, he is just sitting staring at me right now. So for the listener and for yeah. you, that's, that's that noise. But do you think, do you think Obama's error was trying to be bipartisan here? Because I feel like that's really what delayed the passage of the bill. Uh, it, I don't know if that was his motivation for ensuring it was paid for, but I have to guess it was because Bush certainly didn't have to, I mean, Republicans in general aren't called to the carpet for, right. uh, fiscal irresponsibility. So do you feel that was part of the problem? Um, I, I guess I want to separate two pieces, yeah. the fiscal piece from the other piece. So the other pieces, I don't think that was part of the problem in that. I don't think he okay. could have gotten the Democrats on board for a program that's much to the left of what was passed. I don't think you could have had, you couldn't, you couldn't, a bunch of Democrats wouldn't have signed up for the public option. Like senators from Connecticut, for example, the insurance state would not have signed up for the public option. So I don't think on, on the non-fiscal pieces he could have gotten, he could have gone much more to the left without losing key Democrats he needed. On the fiscal side, I think he could have. So I think the mistake was he thought he could make it more bipartisan appealing by being deficit neutral. And I, 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 I think in the end, it didn't buy any bipartisan goodwill. The Democrats would have certainly supported if it was less fiscally responsible and you could have had, you could have made it, um, you know, more acceptable politically. Would it have been enough? I don't know. Like I said, this was sort of, this became the, the, the sort of, um, you know, representative people who want to redo the election. So would that have been enough? I don't know, but it certainly would have helped. Yeah. You know, so you know, as you're watching this whole battle unfold, like what was that like for you personally? Cause you had obviously invested a lot of time and a lot of work. In uh, you know, crafting it, it was, you know, it was a range of emotions. I mean, partly it was frustrating because it was an, a debate dominated by misinformation, you know, awful will, willful misinformation. So part of that, you know, as I said, I wrote a graphic novel. Part of the reason I did that was, you know, what I loved about the ACA was I didn't have to bullshit to get people to like it if they understood that they liked it. So it was just like, it was about, not about selling. It was about explaining that once people understood the law, they liked it. Once people saw the benefits for them and their friends, they liked it. They just weren't being told what was really in it. So it was incredibly frustrating that much of the opposition 
was people who were just, you know, willfully misinformed, not not by their own volition, but by the media sources they chose. Um, and uh, so I, I think that was incredibly frustrating. I was incredibly, you know, personally damaging that people were attacking me so extensively for I was, you know, I'm not a politician. I, I'm, I'm not an elected representative. I did some work on this topic I believed in and you can disagree with me, but to come after me and like the hate I got seemed a bit ridiculous. And once again, was really the sign of things to come, you know, that I probably nothing compared to what Fauci gets. I mean, it's basically the sign of things to come were basically sort of the, really the kind of enormous amount of hate that comes to sort of really experts in an area whose opinions may disagree with and, and they may be wrong. I mean, Fauci was wrong about mass at first, right? But there's no reason to be mean and hateful. And so that was really disturbing as well. And that that brings up my my last question here, which is, you know, I mean, the ACA was contentious, but you know, we've since turned that up to 11. So it is far worse now than it was back then. Do you think that this presents an obstacle or this presents a challenge to getting other smart people who want to do good to help solve our country's big problems. You know, one of the most depressing moments for me was overhearing some graduate students talking and saying like that after what I went through, they'd never want to go do policy advising. And that was incredibly depressing to me. Um, if I do it again, I do it again in a heartbeat, even with all the shit I went through in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I have preferences that were forged by working in the Brookings administration, you know, as a junior in college. Like I have preferences for policy, for change in the world. That's why I do what I do. Um, I think that if we're really going to, I think there is a strong deterrent now. I, but I think the deterrents are not just from social media. Academia has built in deterrents, which is, you know, Dan, I worked, I probably devoted a quarter of my life, you know, with all my other stuff going on, probably a quarter of my life to this for, for a dozen years. And in terms of my professional reputation, it probably was negative within the, within academia. You know, they think, hey, he's just like a policy guy. He's not a serious researcher anymore. So, you know, the academic incentives are sort of messed up. There's no incentive to engage with the real world. Increasingly, uh, uh, the incentives are increasingly just talk to each other and not engage with the real world. So that has to change. I think it's gonna be hard to get academics involved. It doesn't change. But I think it's also... We just need to build those bridges between experts and policymakers. And, and I think if experts really feel heard to understand the power they can have, I think people just don't appreciate that if they take the time to translate what they say, you know, it can really make a difference. I think people would be would be like me. They'd say, look, I'll put up with some hate mail if I really feel like I can make the world a better place. All right. That was perfect. There's one, there's one other question I actually have that I want to put sure. before that, if you don't mind, sure. um, which is it, it, we, uh, cause we've talked, we've talked a lot about the, the individual mandate in this conversation. And that was obviously the most politically feasible in Massachusetts and that the, how do I put this? And, and as it was proved out there, became the model for the ACA in your mind, is that the ideal system for America or do you have another sort of wave your magic wand and make this system appear model I, that you'd prefer? You know, I don't think you can answer that question without recognizing political reality. You know, uh, I'm increasingly a fan of sort of a much more government regulated, you know, 
you can call it single payer, but sort of a universal coverage, you know, type model, but it's politically just not feasible in the U.S. So, and it's not feasible because it involve a huge raise in taxes. It's not feasible because, you know, as we've failed in getting universal coverage repeatedly over the decades, we've put in place piecemeal systems. So right now, like the good news, about 87% of Americans are insured. You know, the bad news is that means if you want to rip it up and start over, you've got to convince 80% and 7% of the people they'd be better off with the new system. So I think radical change is just not. And the third reason is we have a trillion dollar insurance industry that's not going to go quietly into the night. So I think for that reason, you have to ask, what is the best system within the realm of political feasibility? I feel like the ACA was a great compromise and was a great step forward. It still is. I mean, look, it's covered millions of people. It's been a huge success. Um, I think that there are things we can do to fix it. But if you said to me, what's how do we get to truly universal coverage in America? That is really a, a challenge. I'm, I'm just not sure politically how we get there. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please leave a review and share it with one friend you think might like it too. You can also sign up for my email list to get additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day at ydhty.com slash news. Now, a couple things stood out to me in this conversation. One is that the individual mandate was originally a conservative idea. Romney's main concern was healthy people free riding on the healthcare system by not paying in, and the mandate was a free market solution to the problem. The second is the power of political branding. The same idea that was supported by the Conservative Heritage Foundation in Romney's bill transformed into a socialist plot to upend the economy when promoted by then-President Barack Obama. I have to note that in between the passage of Romney's health care bill and the ACA, we had a financial crisis which saw the wealth of the average American cut in half. And getting back to a running theme in the show, when people get scared, it is very easy for political actors to funnel that fear to their advantage. And I can't help but think that played a part in all this. The third and another running theme on the show is that programs are more popular when you don't have to pay for them. Obama's biggest mistake in all this might have been not simply tacking the cost of the ACA on the deficit, as George Bush did when he passed Medicare Part D. The last part is that we're scaring the experts out of Washington. We need smart people who can solve tough problems in government, and believe it or not, people with PhDs from Harvard and MIT have career options that won't have them doxxed by some partisan Twitter vigilante. Our problems aren't getting any easier, and we can either create a political environment where people like John can come and do their best work, or one where political actors turn us against each other. That would be another friendly PSA for changing our plurality system of elections to one that favors consensus-driven candidates, such as ranked choice voting, or mixed member proportional representation. You take your pick. As always, music courtesy of Quellertac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement, Editorial Advisor, and Producer is the Admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. That is four titles if you include Admiral. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Bye-bye.
the chopper!